youth activists across the country, like Mari Kopany, also known as Little Miss Flint, who has brought attention to the Flint water crisis since she was four. Justin Jones, former high school and college organizer, now Tennessee legislator, pushing for gun control, and Rosa De Leon of California for Justice, who championed a youth-led budgeting process in San Jose, aren't begging for a seat at the table on issues like gun control, environmental, education, and economic justice. On today's show, how young people are actually setting the table and driving a policy agenda for justice in America. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Dating back to young children who had the courage to strike, working in mills in the early 1900s, to the student activism of the civil rights movement, youth activism has always had a presence in America. But there has been major challenges for young people to have influence in more traditional places of political power. And that has been especially true for youth of color, who often have been casted as dangerous or less than by the media. That's where professors Justin Coles, Keisha Green, and Jamila Liscott have stepped in at the Center of Racial Justice and Youth-Engaged Research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst to help us learn from our past and imagine a new way of partnering with young people. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Coles. Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Justin Coles. Uh, And as stated, I am an assistant professor of social justice education at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, been there for about two years now. And then also with my co-authors in writing this chapter on youth wilding, we are all directors at our Center of Racial Justice and Youth Engaged Research. And sort of my role there is the director of arts, culture, and political engagement. So I get to do a bunch of really great things with youth and university students around art, justice, and policy. Tell me more. Tell me about the the kinds of things you're doing, Justin. Yeah. So right now we've been looking uh, into uh, what we call artistic imaginaries, particularly theorizing this concept of Black artistic imaginaries at the university. Mm. And so what that looks like is surveying undergraduate students and actually like youth in the surrounding communities about how they document their sort of everyday lives through art. Um, And sort of we then sit with that to kind of tease out where we find pieces of sort of resistance or joy that can help us sort of advance racial justice efforts in ways that perhaps may not come up maybe just through like an interview or some other method of being in community. And so we're really trying to unlock the true power of art and sort of the role it's always played in political movements, justice movements, resistance Mm. movements. Um, And so that is my role. We're finding some really great things there. And I think also attuning into art (laughs) allows us to actually stop 
and see the beauty of the world that we often forget when we're in the, the thick of justice work. What are you learning through this process? It sounds like you value art already to look at the beauty of the world, injustices, justices playing out in, in different ways. But what are you learning as a scholar in this process? Yeah, that's such a, a great question. I, I think, and to your point, like being sort of already an art lover, but I think merging the art and sort of academia, right, scholarship, Mm -hmm. I, I think what is truly taught me or perhaps retaught me is the power of communication that is not grounded in words. Mm -hmm. So I'm a former English teacher. And so I have a true passion for words and literacy. That's all my scholarship is about. And so mm -hmm. this has given me a chance to perhaps put words on the back burner for a bit and to think about the possibilities that happen when we communicate with folks beyond that. And I think the real beauty of it, um, and so at our center, Dr. Jamila Liskai and Dr. Green and myself, we do a lot of like international work. And mm -hmm. sometimes there can be boundaries with words too, but everyone can communicate via images, right? Via their bodily movements mm. and sort of how they compose themselves beyond words. And so I think it's convincing me to go there more. Mm. To let go a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, to, to see words as not the the think of all things that we have to use to communicate. I mean, I do think that's interesting for like how we think about policy, right? Which is sort of grounded in documents and words. Mm. But what we do in our work is, you know, how do we at least start with art as a way to inform those words? Um, but maybe there will be one day, right, where <laughs> policy looks different. <laughs> that would be amazing in different ways than have its own challenges, right? Right. But so I'm curious now. Going back to you, Justin, how did your upbringing shape your interests as an educator and scholar? Yeah, no, there's a few things. And so just to kind of do a quick arc for the people. So I grew up in a household where my mom was a teacher um, mm -hmm. and she still is a teacher in inner city Philadelphia. She mm -hmm. actually went to Cheney University, which is the first HBCU, historically black college and university in the nation. And it was originally designed to train teachers, predominantly the Black teachers who will be working in Philadelphia. And so there's this entire orientation of teaching and community that I've been immersed in. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also grew up in sort of a very interesting dynamic. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. My family moved there in the 90s, which was at the time the initial part of white flight. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I first moved into this suburb, it was very racially mixed. And then by the time I went to high school, it was predominantly Black. And I was a yearbook editor, so you can literally see the changes. And over the years, with the predominant Blackness growing, is when the reputation of the school outside, via policy, all these conversations started to be seen as a bad school. And I was like, well, wait, what happened outside mm. of the racial composition changing? Uh, and so I always became very curious about school makeups and composition and how that sort of like how that translates to which school is bad or not. And that mm. is essentially the core of all the racial justice work I do. It's kind of, to your point, rooted in like spatial awareness and geography of racial bodies and how, like, based on that alone, mm. it the, the, the politics of education and policy are decided who gets what, when they get it and how they get it for no other reason, just because of the people who attend. Fascinating. And then what brought you to the classroom? That was it. I always tell people I wanted to get a peek behind the institutional curtain. 
Um, mm-hmm. So beyond being a student, I knew that there was something, there's some barrier, right? You kind of have to, you know, people always say you have to be in something to get it. Um, and so I spent my entire life as a student, but mm-hmm. I wanted to see what is it like from a teacher side? What does it mean to teach predominantly minoritized students? How can I feel those limits? Like I said, how can I feel who gets what, when they get it and how they get it, opposed to just mm-hmm. experiencing it? And in many ways, Joe, how, because of my position, I contributed, right, to who got what and when they got it. In your chapter, you talk about a racialized logic. Yeah. Right. For the listeners, could you explain more what that means and even maybe what you saw as a yearbook editor <laughs> at your school? I just for a, a quick point of, I guess, definition or clarity, we essentially mean that, like, you know, if we think about logic, right, we all have a logic of how we view the world or understand things. For a very bad example, right, like if you go to a restaurant, we all have like a logic of what it means to be oriented to a space, what to mm-hmm. do, how to sit, how to order. Um, and so when we talk about racialized policy logic, we are basically being like, how do we think, right, logic as think about policy through the lens of race. And so not seeing policy as a colorblind, mm-hmm. raceless thing, but understanding that policy is enacted at least how we are conceiving it in the continental U.S., which is a racialized place, which means that it is organized around racial hierarchies. We must be attentive to that when we engage in any policy work and to to engage in policy as if we don't have material and psychic impacts on the lives of Mm -hmm. people of all races Mm -hmm. and all races differently is mm-hmm. both a disservice and, as many scholars have identified it, is also um, violent as well. And so racialized logic is just to simply be aware of how U.S., the U.S. is a raced society, and then to be responsible, I think is the best word to say, by using race in those logics. And when you think about the racialized logic that young people inherit, what does that mean in terms of policy and how we think about policy, Justin? Yeah, I think that question is so layered. And I think there's a few ways I can answer it. But, you know, I think the way youth inherit racialized logic is fluid and flexible and it changes based on different moments, right? I'm thinking about youth now who grew up in the Black Lives Matter era, Mm -hmm. right? Which I did not. I experienced it, but I wasn't sort of birthed through that. And that's a different sort of logic or inheritance that those youth will get, just like youth sort of prior to that, thinking about in the age of Obama, where there was a lot of post-racial rhetoric, right? That's a Mm. different inheritance. And so I think what I'm trying to get at, and bring me back if this is not sort of where it was, the inheritance that youth get in the U.S., as I just named, is sort of often distorted and inconsistent, and it's a bit warped. And so then we always have to do the job of like getting everyone on the same page about what are the actual realities of race and policy that affect us because depending on the space and time, people have a different orientation. And I think that is further complicated when sort of what our chapter is grounded in when we ignore history. Mm. If we were attentive to history, all youth would have the same inheritance. Mm -hmm. Um, But because depending on who's in power at a certain time, determines what is real history, it kind of gives us all this warped reality. And I think we're experiencing that now with critical race theory bans, African-American U.S. history bans, mm. the, the true inheritance that you should get. It's almost this sort of, we're all lost in space trying to grab what is real and what isn't. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when we get to the, the center of, of this chapter and a lot of your work as a center, at its core, I think you talk a lot about how young people can be driving their own destiny. Yeah. It sounds like you've been in that journey yourself and maybe you didn't call yourself a policymaker. <laughs> maybe now you do, but what does that mean as we think about policy as a process, policy as an outcome? Policy is, to your point, sometimes it reinforces or challenges racialized logics. For all of those, right, outcome, process, logics, et cetera, I think what it means is, so youth have deep agency, and unfortunately, though, <laughs> for many things like adultism, whatever, we sort of rob youth of that agency. Uh, and so what we have to understand is that no matter what we say or do, youth will always sort of be in control of their lives. And I think adults, we have this weird thing where we think that we are <laughs> in control um, mm-hmm. and we're not. We may be in control on like these surface levels things like, right, we may enact standards and systems and policies, but they're disconnected from the youth, and right? So they may not align with those or respect it. And so I think when we say youth are drivers of the policy, we're trying to figure out how do we match what we do, right, with their agency. And right now, the policy landscape is not aligned with youth and sort of where they want to go, who they see themselves as. And I think that we see that daily in our chapter, particularly as we talked about, we, we grounded it in the Central Park Five, Right. So we kind of start with this question that is a subtext of the chapter, but we don't name it in there. And it's very simple. Right. What if lawmakers, policy folks, community members simply set with those five youth right outside of a courtroom, right outside of trying to put them away? How would this narrative been completely different? So that is what we think is important for policy outcomes, processes and et cetera. It's it's simply to just be informed by youth experiences. And so as you notice, we do this language a lot that we're doing policy with youth and not for youth. And so that's really how it informs all those things that you mentioned. Let's bring the listeners back to the historical context of the idea of, of youth youth wildness as you as you reference. And you, you mentioned the five five young people who we should have listened to from the get-go. Yeah, and so just a quick recap. So um, for those of you, uh, I will assume the majority of listeners out there are familiar with the Central Park Five, now uh, referred to as the Exonerated Five. And so what happened is essentially, just quickly, there was in the 80s, a white woman who was a graduate of Yale, which the media made sure that we knew, was beatily sort of raped and sort of abused and left in the park to die. Um, And sort of at this time, there were tons of youth in the city, just sort of hanging out in the park as well. Um, but the, the DA and many folks were under a lot of pressure to get a case. Uh, and so opposed to doing the due diligence to really take time to find the person who did it, which again, everyone agrees should have happened. They sort of just gathered a bunch of kids, particularly these were all black and brown students who were uh, living uh, in low income areas. Uh, who didn't necessarily have the representation or resources to sort of challenge the legal system. And sort of they were put away for a crime that we came to found out uh, that they did not commit. So that is just a quick backstory for um, those listeners. And so essentially to reconnect it in the wake of that story, there was this term that was in the media that was called youth wilding. And essentially 
it went along the line of the narrative of a super predator and it was essentially uh, gangs of black and brown kids black and brown boys in particular who were teenagers who had nothing better to do than to go into parks or other crowded spaces and terrorize people particularly terrorize white women and if you know anything there's a long history yes. in the US of black boys and brown boys being portrayed as their sole purpose is to terrify white women. Um, and so this also connects to why we say we have to use racialized logic, because if you use racialized logic, you'll be able to sort of tease out that history and see how that's all problematic. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, maybe a parent, maybe you're a student, maybe you make policy at the state level, or maybe you just want to learn about this topic so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this episode. Please email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't yet clicked follow on this podcast, please do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Throughout this podcast, we've talked about school and community safety. Today, Justin and I explored the racialized nature of ideas around school and community safety to connect to this conversation. So where is that going to take us? I asked Justin if he saw the moral gravity shifting in our country. You talk about making a, a shift as a country. What does a paradigm shift look like? as we kind of redefine, rebuild the idea of policy, something that builds upon our characteristics and our assets, but also doesn't ignore a history of discrimination or frankly dehumanizing students based on the color of their skin in, in policy spaces and even how, how we've treated them in classrooms and other spaces. Yeah, there's a few ways uh, I'd, I'd answer that. I think broadly in the racial justice po youth policy model that we put forward. We sort of have these five areas of influence. There's one though that particularly stands out to me and my co-authors, which is community engagement. And so I think many policymakers over the years have tried to do that more, but typically what community engagement looks like in policy is policymakers perhaps going into communities and like taking mm -hmm. brief snippets to then inform, but not necessarily inviting those community folks to be at the table. Uh, to be the voices that actually get the policy to the finish line. Uh, and so I think that's something that we're really trying to sit with and think about more and to reimagine that as a paradigm shift. I think also that really goes with the second way I would want to answer it is for us to, to, to truly have a paradigm shift, we have to demystify policy. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain what that means. And I think for, for all the listeners, uh, when you actually have a chance to read this book, I do think 
this is the beauty of the book. And I think why me and my co-authors were really excited about it uh, and sort of the work that Joe is highlighting in it. Oftentimes, policy is this thought of and seen as very like esoteric and just like disconnected from the lives of people. So there's like a lot of mystery around like what is policy and really like who can do policy. Mm. It often seems like there's like this high barrier of entry because it's this thing that's like a definable, but also most people don't know what it is, right, policy. Uh, and so I think we have to make it accessible, especially to youth and, and, and minoritized youth. Um, I think the big way we get to that paradigm shift is to do things like this, to let people know what is policy and that you, one, as you mentioned, Joe, when we first started, most likely are already engaged in some level of policy work. Right. right. That's the power that the true policy folks are those who really are empowered, don't want people to know. Because if you tell me, if you tell a young black and brown person, like you actually are already engaging in this work and here's what you need to do to take it further, mm. then, you know, everything will be disrupted, right? And who likes disruption? And <laughs> the US, we do, right? And so I think that's what we're trying to, to push for. Um, policy has so many implications, positive and negative on the material conditions of our lives. And so... I think that's the true shift, if I can name that, Joe, is that community engagement to really demystify policy as something that people can't do. Like, you know, policy for everyone essentially is what I think is truly what needs to happen. Yep, absolutely. That goes back to the first episode with We Are All Policymakers was the title. So you just cued it right up there, Dr. Coles. Justin Coles, Keisha Green, and Jamila Liscott have developed a new framework for thinking about youth-driven policies. Here is how he described that new way of work with and for young people. We may have touched on this a bit. Our, our, our biggest thing, and particularly for me as a scholar and my co-authors as well, uh, Dr. Keisha Green and Dr. Jamila Liscott, there is a way in which I move through my work always thinking about school and society. And mm -hmm. so I'm an educator and I'm trained in education, but oftentimes uh, for those listening, if you are trained as an educator, particularly through doctoral studies, you're sort of taught to only focus on the institution of schooling mm -hmm. and to sort of ignore societal realities. Um, mm -hmm. And so we make sure that they are all connected. And so we like to say we are a center of both school and society. And so our five, Areas of influence include racial equity, critical teacher education, youth leadership, fugitivity and abolition, and community engagement. If you kind of visualized the graphic of our model in your head, mm. the two out of the five that actually are across from each other are community engagement and critical teacher education, really anchoring our society and schooling. And yep. so since we are working with youth, we know that sort of a major place where youth are socialized to perhaps see themselves as, as having agency or not is yep. through their classroom experience, through the work of teachers. And so we know that we have to engage in a critical teacher education so that when folks are going into these spaces, as we mentioned, they might be able to teach with racialized logics, right? Mm -hmm. That way they know, okay, you know what? These are the sort of students that I have in my classroom. This is the larger landscape of our society. How do I mirror those to give them the best education and not to go in here like 
oh, all my students are just students, right? There is no race <laughs> mm. or there is no power. And again, coupled with that community engagement, we want both community members to always be informed by schooling and schooling members always to be informed by community. And, and we see that as a true core or a crux, whatever, of our advancement of our vision forward. And when you think about geography and racial logics and even our the history of our country and you think about the slave trade and and how I think sometimes we have this idea of the North and the South yeah. as like this perfect wall that separated everybody and there were certain ideologies here and not there. I'm curious, even as you think about what that means for 2023 in your work and growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and now in, in New England, what role does geography play or do you feel like these principles kind of transcend geographic barriers that are sometimes just kind of set up in our minds but may not be uh, real? I'm just curious. No, yeah, that's really um, important. I, you know, I think these are our five areas of influence, our principles. They sort of, I think, transcend all bounds, uh, geographical bounds, uh, even mm-hmm. transnationally. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I do want to name, I, you know, I'm glad that this has been coming up, this concept of the geography, because it is important, right? Like these things will play out differently based on the geographical space. So for example, again, just to name them quickly, racial equity, critical teacher education, youth leadership, fugitivity, and ad- abolition, and community engagement. We understand these as always being present, but there might be some area, Joe, where people are like, you know what, we got everything else kind of all right, we really need to zero in on this racial equity part because that is completely lacking, right? Or another space may say, we really aren't doing a great job with youth leadership, right? How do we amplify that based off our geographical needs? And then to the point that you really started off with, which I think is important, thinking about history such as like slavery and et cetera, being attentive to different events that have existed in various spaces. Uh, and so I'm thinking right now about an event I've been sitting a lot with recently, which is the mass shooting and in Buffalo, New York at the top yeah. supermarket mm-hmm. for the black and brown students in those spaces, right? That's a different now geographical violence that they experienced where because of who they were and where they lived, they were, compl- they were targeted for that specifically. So those policy conversations with those youth are gonna look very, very different, at least in this moment in time, than, for example, a youth in a different city who still feels very comfortable walking into their supermarket. Mm. I think this transcends, but to your point, I would encourage all listeners out there, particularly those who are deeply interested in policy, to, you know, we've talked about racial logics, but to also think about that geographical logic as well, that mapping, because the more we can kind of think about both of those together, the duality of it, is the more precise we can get in our policy sort of advocacy. And mm-hmm. I think the more like the more likelihood that actual change will happen. So it's always being attentive to all the things, you know, history, the present, uh, and also thinking about the future because, you know, that sort of cyclical nature of always immersing ourselves in past, present, and future policy is where we need to sit. I asked Justin to describe examples of their framework in action. Here's what he shared. So there are a few things, uh, and just for the folks out there that we have sort of like listed, or at least things that were 
that were and are continuing to inform us of walking the talk. And just to to reiterate and to not necessarily have this first answer as a to be too general, if you will, but it is yeah. true. And it is to be in youth spaces that youth are already doing. And I think now we're in a world where that can both be digital. Um, and so all over, particularly mm-hmm. now as I think about this ongoing conversation about LGBTQIA plus sort of rights and sort of what that means for youth and trans youth specifically, youth are documenting their lived experiences and why they challenge these policies, what we call in our article, policy counter stories Mm. all over, you know? And so the first step is literally just to listen. And as I like to say, to be present in the world, right? Oftentimes Mm. we are so focused on other things that we aren't just being like, wait, what is around me? What are people doing and saying around me that is talking about this? Although I may not see it as that because they aren't, you know, in this political position. So that's first and foremost, that's where we get a lot of our influence from. As noted in our chapter, all three of us are deep youth workers, right? Probably Mm -hmm. youth workers before we would consider ourselves policy uh, makers or policy influencers. And so that is how this chapter came to be. We tried to anchor it in what is a time in history where our laws and policy completely failed our youth. Um, And so we seek to not do that by listening to them. In our paper, just for those out there, we mentioned the Boston Student Advisory Council, Mm -hmm. which is facilitated through the Youth Board on Boston. Mm -hmm. They're doing really great work in New England. um, And those are people that we kind of like look to often, both work they've done in the past and sort of some work they're doing now as like walking the talk. It's literally like youth-driven work. And then there was an example we highlight from 22 Um, the Chicago Public Schools Radical Youth Alliance, Mm -hmm. where sort of they're organizing like walkouts and all sorts of things. And even we didn't mention in this paper, but a few years ago, Detroit, they have what they call the Detroit sickouts or the Detroit walkouts. Uh, And so teachers were sort of tired of the gross conditions of some of the school buildings. And so the teachers sort of walked out, but then students organized also, right, to sort of walk out both in solidarity with teachers, but more so in solidarity with themselves because they also mm. attend these buildings, right? It's not just about teachers getting sick, which no, but no one was thinking about all the students getting mm. sick. Uh, and so they took it upon their own self. And so these are models. And so I want to be clear for walking the talk. Often, it may be some ongoing, continual thing. Like at our Center of Racial Justice, we also have a youth board that mm. works to inform policy. But it may not necessarily be something institutionalized, but it might be more of these like pop-up actions that we see, again, like a Detroit sick out, walk out, um, the Chicago Public Schools walk out, or like I mentioned, folks organizing on social media. Um, And so our goal, (laughs) particularly as adults who are invested in youth, is to see that and then to not go into policy spaces acting as if we never saw what they were doing. So it sounds to me like as we're thinking about walking the talk, the policy ecosystem is moving constantly. And sometimes we don't acknowledge that it is moving or acknowledge or even know the influence of certain actions undertaken. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that's, I think that's what I'm, what I'm getting at. And I, you know, and I get it, right? It might be difficult, you know, I think when things are moving. And I think part of policy, again, that esoteric nature is to control it and to sort of set boundaries so that it is digestible, but again, digestible for whom? 
right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> the people on the streets uh, who are living their lives and sort of advocating, you know, who whatever don't have government clearances or certain access to be featured in the, you know, with lobbyists and et cetera, they're kind of disconnected from that. And so we have to, I think to commit to policy is to commit to being flexible, to commit to this sort of unknown, perhaps non-linear, non-neat understanding of a topic where, you know, I, you know, we talk about like, we think about a policy brief or, you know, it's just, again, it's just very, sometimes policy has been conceptualized in a way that honestly just doesn't work for the world that we live in. Um, and I think that's why people are sort of further excluded from policies more than included because of the way that it is packaged. And so I think we have to sort of take a leap of sort of faith, if you will, yep. to be more attentive to the sort of policy universe that is shifting and it is moving. And it may not be, you know, that the most groundbreaking policy may not come from someone who has a PhD in policy, right? It, mm-hmm. And I'll say that on this thing, it probably won't, right? <laughs> it, like it, it actually not. probably won't. It um, will not. But it, it will come from <laughs> someone who is, you know, I'm thinking about what happened now with, in my, even my hometown of Philadelphia, um, I was thinking about Ohio with the train spill, but just recently, and uh, there was a spill and sort of a body of water in Philadelphia. And so now everyone's on alert to drink yep. bottled water, even going back to Flint, right? Like a lot of that policy work was coming from people on the ground who were living, who are trying to find water to bathe in. It, it's not going to come from someone who is there. So then our goal is how do we stay in partnership with this policy universe that has all actors? And the policy for whom question, uh, Sonia Douglas and Anna Kushner tackled that to some degree with there's no racial justice without community yep. episode. Justin, you've, you've magically tied everything together. <laughs> this is always a hard question to answer. Wherever you may sit, however you may understand policy, or even what brings you here today as a listener, what's the one thing you want listeners to take away from our conversation today, Dr. Coles? Hmm. I'll say this, um, and I think... It's particularly important right now as we are living in an era of ahistoricism mm. is that we must all commit to being historically grounded and historically informed. Um, as I try to demonstrate here, through a few questions, everything that we are currently experiencing can be directly traced and connected to history because that's what history does. It leaves legacies. Mm. It informs the way that we think, it informs our ideologies, it informs our practice, and it informs our well-being or our not-so-well-being. And so we must all commit to be historians, in a sense, if you will, Mm -hmm. to be theorizers of history, Mm -hmm. um, and then to make sure that we are always connecting that to anything that we think that we're advancing that is new, and to make sure that we we tease that out for people um, of how this is historically situated. I do also a lot of Afrofuturist work. And one of the things about it is that, um, as I noted, we are always living the past, present, and the future. Mm. But what happens in American policy is for some reason we leave out that past part. Uh, And so I want to urge you all to commit to the past. Mm. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Coles, it's been an honor to have you on the show. I want to thank you for your co-author chapter which is all about how young people can help us redefine, reshape, reimagine what policy can and what it should be. And to your point, that it should start with the past 
before we even think about the present and the future. Mari Kopany was four when the news started covering her advocacy around the Flint water crisis. Today, she's 14 and Flint still doesn't have clean drinking water. She's still working on it. Justin Jones is part of the famous Tennessee Three who were recently expelled from the Tennessee legislature for sounding the alarm on gun control legislation. But before that, Justin was focused for five plus years on expanding Medicaid, removing KKK figures from public spaces and voting rights. Rosa de Leon, who I started working with as part of a case study on youth organizing in San Jose for Californians for Justice, has been working for years to transform her community and empower young people who have learned from her. The common thread in all three of these people is they've committed years of their life to changing the world. They are not the overnight sensations often described in the media. We have millions of Maris, Justins, and Rosas who are ready to lead and even to be a future president. But they need mentors and adults like you who see their potential and can empower them to take on these battles that are often multi-generational and intersectional. Will we ask ourselves how we can help or even get out of the way or keep policy business as usual in a way that can actually harm young people? If we listen, watch, and work shoulder to shoulder with youth, better times are ahead. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Wyndham is the producer. Julia Wyndham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is a creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic. <laughs>